0: If you have your Bibles, please turn in them to Ephesians 1. We continue this morning in our study through the book of Ephesians. This morning we're going to be focusing on verses 5 through 6, which come to us in the context of a larger section of verses 3 through 14. Let me read now verses five through six. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Go once more to the Lord with me in prayer. pray. Father, we approach you as such a needy people. There are so many of us that need greater knowledge of your great love for us, greater understanding of your relationship to us as Father. Lord, would you be pleased to open the eyes of our hearts? Would you be pleased to grant us greater sight? By the power of your spirit, give us strength to comprehend rich truths. Lord, there are some, if not many of us, that need to know you as Father for the first time. Would you now move in power your word as it is preached? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You don't have to live long before you discover that there are two types of people in this world when it comes to receiving gifts. Two types of people when it comes to receiving gifts. There is that type of person who merely wants to receive something they want. They might tell you what they want, then you give it to them and everyone is happy. But there are also those types of people who wish to receive a gift that reflects something, uh, some level of thoughtfulness or foresight or planning on the part of the giver. So perhaps you're in a marriage where you're married to the first type of person. And every time Christmas or a birthday rolls around, they tell you, here are some things that I like, here are some things that I want. And then you get it for them and everyone's happy. And I would say if you're a husband in a marriage like that, you are blessed among men. But most of us are in a marriage where every time a birthday or holiday rolls around, your spouse wants something nice, but they want something that reflects your great love for them. And this is a very natural feeling. They want some sort of story of how the gift came at great cost, how it came with great insight into their character, their likes and dislikes. They want to know you didn't scramble together at the last minute. No, you planned ahead of time. You planned this for quite some time. You exerted effort. You showed foresight. You did research. You waited in traffic. You fought off the other husbands. You put in the work, all because you love your wife, Erin. I mean your spouse. And you want to show them how much you actually love them. We appreciate a gift that requires planning. We appreciate a gift that requires some level of foresight. But brothers and sisters, like the thoughtful and planned gift, our salvation is not thrown together. Our salvation is not random or reactionary. It is not half-baked or haphazard. It is deliberate. And it is the fruit of thorough forthright and loving and perfect planning. And in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul wants us to know that our salvation is greater and grander than we could possibly imagine. Our salvation, it reflects a love of unfathomable depths. And brothers and sisters, our task this morning as we dive into Ephesians 1 verses 5 through 6 is to scour the depths of God's love. Those are our verses, that is our task. As I say, these verses, they come into the larger context of verses 3 through 14, which as I mentioned last week, uh, those verses, verses 3 through 14, are just one, 202-word sentence. It's a single sentence. It's unbroken, passionate, sustained doxology. And as we consider the verses that we have before us this morning, there are many truths that we've not yet gotten into, but there are some truths that we're sort of reviewing again, and what Paul is doing in this letter, what he's doing in these verses is he's presenting salvation as a diamond, and what he's doing is he's turning the diamond so that we can see that diamond from different angles and different facets of it, and it allows a fresh ray of brilliance to shine upon us and to dazzle us so friends, this sermon today, we're considering the doctrine of adoption. And with that in mind, I have three points. They're all related to this great doctrine of adoption. The three points that come from our text are, first, the plan of adoption. Second, the power of adoption. And third, the purpose of adoption. We have the plan, the power, and the purpose of of adoption. And as I prayed a moment ago, I have many desires this morning. I have many goals for the message this morning. But perhaps the greatest aim is that we would grow in our estimation of our Heavenly Father's love for us. It's very natural in the Christian life to have great appreciation and heart knowledge and feelings towards Jesus Christ and understanding of his heart posture towards us. It's very natural in the Christian life to Think about the Holy Spirit's work in our life, to keep in step with the Spirit. But it might not be as natural for us to consider the love with which the Father cares for us. So consider with me point number one the plan of adoption. Verse 5 says, In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will point is the plan of adoption. And in this point, and as I say those points, we're going to spend most of our time on the second point. Uh, This first point, I'm not yet considering the nature of the doctrine of adoption. Rather, I'm focusing on that word plan because it's in our text that Paul uses that word predestined. He uses the word predestined, which means exactly that. It means to see or to plan in advance. It means to decree. It means to foreordain, or as it is accurately in our text, to predestine. It's the same word that Paul uses many times in the Scriptures. Uh, It's the same word he uses in verse 11 of chapter 1. Look at verse 11. He says, in him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What does God predestine? He predestines all things. What does he plan according to the Bible? He plans all things. What does he predetermine according to the perfect counsel of his will? He predetermines all things. Friends, God predestines. And what we say about what God predestines, what we often refer to as the doctrine of God's providence, it is total. It includes everything. It is all-encompassing. There are no things that happen in this world or in your life apart from the planning of God. This is Trinity Church Kennesaw. For those who don't know, we are a Baptist church and therefore we hold to a Baptist statement of faith. Uh, Our statement of faith, what we call our confession, is called the abstract of principles. Now the abstract of principles, which is a great statement of faith, has a horrible name, but a great statement of faith, the abstract of principles, is based on a larger statement of faith called the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Now it's that statement of faith that defines the doctrine of predestination very thoroughly. I want you to listen to how this statement of faith defines the doctrine of predestination. And if you're familiar with the Westminster Catechism or the Westminster Confession, it's basically the same thing. The authors say that God hath decreed, you could say God hath predestined, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever comes to pass. The authors add, yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin nor, the, nor have fellowship with anything therein. Uh, God creates or he decrees all that comes to pass. Yet the Bible also affirms that God is not the originator of sin. God is not the author of sin, as the Apostle James tells us. God is light, as the Apostle John says, and in him is no darkness at all. No, no, God does not create or originate evil, but God has decreed and uses all things that come to pass for his glory. We're talking about predestination. We're talking about the doctrine of God's providence. I'm helped by John Piper on this point in a very concise definition. If you want to know what is God's providence, he says it is God's purposeful sovereignty, so the doctrine of providence, this doctrine of predestination, God's decree, is more than, his, uh, more than election. It's more than the fact that God is really, really, really powerful. No, it's purposeful sovereignty through which God is carrying out all the matters of his will. Let me say three things about the doctrine of predestination. And as I said about the doctrine of election last week, we're aware it. Church, that if you're hearing these things for the first time, uh, these can be difficult things to grasp. These can even be troubling things for even sincere Christians, but we do believe this is what the Bible teaches. This is a matter of God's word. It's a matter of God's will, and it's for the good of the Christian. So here are three things about predestination before we get into how Paul uses the doctrine in our text. First, friends, predestination that is, the, the doctrine or the belief that God plans and knows the end from the beginning is basic Christian belief. This is, this is a core tenet of basic Christian belief. This doctrine of predestination, it's not the cruel invention of Calvinists, nor does it emerge from some dark corner of the Reformation tradition. Rather, predestination has always been a part of Christian belief. So it wasn't invented 500 years ago. No, you'll find predestination in Roman Catholic theology. You'll find predestination in medieval theology. You'll find predestination in the works of the Patristics and the Church Fathers and the works of Augustine. You'll find it all over the place in Christian tradition. It's no new doctrine. It's basic Christianity. But even more than that, it's basic to theism. So even predating Christianity... Uh, the idea that God knows the end from the beginning and God plans the end from the beginning is a basic tenet of Jewish thought. We see this in Isaiah 46. It's even a basic tenet of Islam. If you have a Muslim friend and you ask a Muslim friend today, hey, can you get lunch with me on Friday? If they're a devout Muslim, they will probably say something like, inshallah, I will. That phrase, inshallah, it means... If Allah wills, if God wills, even in the Islamic theological system, they believe in a God that is the creator and sustainer of the universe, He knows the end from the beginning. He has planned all things. It is basic theistic belief to affirm the doctrine of predestination. Secondly, predestination, that word, if we look at how it's used in the Bible, it's used both broadly and narrowly. So in our text, as we'll see in a moment, it's used rather narrowly to describe one subset of salvation, but it's also used broadly to explain all of God's providence, his will in all matters. So, for example, in Romans 8, 29, it's used narrowly. There, Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He's using it narrowly there. He predestined them to eternal life. We also see the word used broadly in the Bible in places like Acts 4. In Acts 4, the persecuted church, uh, they are in trial. They are suffering. They are, their leaders are imprisoned. And the saints together in Jerusalem in Acts 4, this is what they say. They, they pray to God and they say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth, And the sea and everything in them. And then they quote Psalm 2, and then they say this They say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Do you understand that prayer? They're saying, oh, sovereign Lord, we know that you appointed Herod and Pontius Pilate to crucify your son. We know that you used the Jews and the Gentiles to, in a very real way, sin and to deliver your son to death. But we know you have orchestrated and you've used that event to bring many sons to glory. You've used that event to redeem a people. And it's here, brothers and sisters, we see something of the intersection." between how God uses uh, evil in the world, how he uses wicked things, how he uses the free will of human beings in this life. God superintends wickedness for his own glory and for the purpose of redemption. He uses real and free actions to redeem his people and to accomplish the purposes of his glory. We see this perhaps in no clearer way than in the narrative of Joseph's life. Remember Joseph. He's so he's he's sold into slavery. Decades he's separated from his family. He's imprisoned unjustly. Experiences trial after trial after trial. He's then charged to deliver the people of Egypt and the people of Israel from famine. And after his father's Jacob's death, his brothers think that Joseph is going to take vengeance upon him. And what does Joseph say to his brothers? He says, "What you meant for evil." God meant for good. What you meant, what you intended to do to accomplish great wickedness because of the sin in your heart, God used that. He superintended that for his good, for his glory, and for the good of his people. Brothers and sisters, predestination is used both broadly to describe salvation and or broadly describe all events and narrowly to describe salvation. Thirdly, predestination friends, this doctrine of God's providence, it extends to the biggest and the smallest things. It extends to both the biggest things, atom bombs, World Trade Centers, the biggest things to happen in life, and the smallest, most minuscule, minute, minute details of your life. All things, macro and micro, global and granular, major and minor, they come under the dominion of his exacting eternal decree. There are no accidents, friends. There are no surprises to God. There are no stray acts that escape his providence. The Bible just makes this so plain. Perhaps the clearest place the Bible makes this is in Proverbs 16, where the author says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Do you understand what the author is saying when he says that? He says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. He's trying to think, what is the most random, insignificant thing that can happen in this world? And he says, oh, I know, uh, uh, the roll of the dice. Surely that doesn't matter to God, except it does, because he planned it. It's every decision is from the Lord. There are no things that happen apart from the planning of God. Well, friends, in just a moment, we're going to see how Paul he appropriates the doctrine and how he uses the doctrine of adoption. But it's just worth saying, though this isn't the main idea of this sermon, it's not the main idea of our text, but we should realize that God's providence should be one of the greatest sources of comfort in our lives. Friends, there's nothing that happens in your life Apart from the will of God, there's no suffering, there's no trial, there's no thing that happens in your life that that happens apart from the planning of God. God is always working out his perfect purposes for his glory and for your good, and I just should add, if that's not the soft pillow you rest on at night, what is the alternative? And what alternative do you have to a sovereign God who accomplishes all his purposes, who who has planned all his purposes when you go through trial? When you experience cancer? When you experience the loss of a loved one? You see, friends, when you cling to the rock of God's sovereignty through the storm of suffering, you're saying so much more than that God is sovereign. You're not saying less than that. You're saying so much more than that God is powerful. You're saying so much more than that God is a little bit stronger than the devil. You're saying so much more than that God will ultimately win in the end and it will all work out. No, you're saying that my God has planned this. And my God knows the end from the beginning. And my God will use every circumstance in my life to bring glory to his name and for my ultimate good. And whatever my God ordains is right. There are no stray acts of providence. He is over all things. Well, we know from the Bible that God predestines. We know from our text in Ephesians that God predestines all things. But what aspect of predestination does, does Paul highlight in our text? What does he highlight in verse 5? And this leads us to point number two, the power of adoption. Verse 5 says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Was here, friends, where we arrive at the doctrine of adoption, and this is one of the most precious, distinct doctrines of the Christian faith. Many of you I trust have read uh, the the Christian classic Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Pastors have a lot of bad habits and one of them is to uh, recommend too many books. Uh, But because I've made that caveat and I acknowledge that it is a bad habit, I can now do that and recommend the book. Uh, It's one of those books that every Christian should read. Knowing God by J.I. Packer and it's worth reading Um, it's worth the the price of the book for his chapter on adoption. I think it's called Sons of God. And this is how J.I. Packer, he introduces the doctrine of adoption. He says, You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of, God, of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. And then he says, Father is the Christian name for God. Friends, do you believe that? There's only Christians that can truly claim God as their father because it's how the Bible reveals him. He reveals him as our father only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can truly know God as our father. I want to ask the text two questions. First, what is adoption? What is adoption? As we consider the power of this truth, the power of this doctrine, what is it? What is adoption? Let me offer you this working definition. Adoption is the process by which we are made children of God, whereby we are treated as heirs in Christ, receive the Holy Spirit, and have fellowship with and access to God the Father. You want to know what adoption is? I think that would be a good summary. Adoption is the process by which we are made children of God, whereby we are treated as heirs in Christ. Sons of God. We're received as heirs of Christ, heirs in Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit, and we have fellowship with and access to God the Father. The word that Paul uses in our text is the word for adoptive sonship. And this is a word that is distinctively Pauline. You'll find it in a few of his letters. You won't find it in other places, But though it's not used much in the New Testament, this was a very popular idea in Roman thought. Not so much Jewish thought, not so much Greek thought, but very popular in Roman thought and in Roman culture. And it would have been clear to the readers of Paul. And there are three main emphases that the New Testament gets across when it comes to the doctrine of adoption. First, we are made heirs in Christ. And that's what's going on in our text. We're, we're made heirs, H-E-I-R-S, made heirs in Christ. It was often the case that in Greco-Roman culture that a childless man would adopt an heir. He wouldn't, do, he wouldn't adopt the child in infancy. It would usually be when the child was in adolescence. And it was often a child who was born into slavery. And uh, this process of adoption would have two parts. It would have two sort of main stages. First, there was a... There was a relinquishing from the old sonship, a dissolving of the relationship between the son and his former father. He was unsunned from the old father, and then he was entered into, he was invited and received into the new family. Two parts, former sonship dissolving, new sonship formed, new sonship created. Brothers and sisters, you can appreciate the Christian significance there. When we are adopted into the family of God, we are severed from sin. We are severed from sin and its consequences. We are unsunned from Satan. We are no longer children of wrath. We are decoupled from the devil. His tyranny, tyranny have been utterly vanquished. They no longer have any sort of ruling principle in our lives. No, in Christ. I live according to a new principle. I have a new relationship. Indeed, the Almighty God is now my Father. I belong to Him. I don't relate to Him like He's my Father. I relate to Him as He's my Father. He is actually, truly my Father. We are made heirs in Christ, and we experience all the benefits of sonship, all the benefits of belonging to our Heavenly Father. Secondly, we receive the Holy Spirit. As those adopted to sonship through Christ, I am given the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of God is coursing through my veins. He's in my heart. The chief blessing of sonship is that we have been given the Spirit of God and it is to those who live according to that Spirit that reveal themselves to be children of God. You'll see the Bible talk about this in a couple of different ways. It'll say, because you're adopted, you have been given the Spirit. The Spirit has been bestowed upon you. And then it'll, it will say things like, if you live according to the Spirit, put on the fruit of the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, you reveal that you are a child of God. You reveal something of the family resemblance. It's not like we put on the Spirit in order to become a child of God. But by keeping in step with the Spirit, oh, we reveal, oh, I look like my dad. I look like my father. I resemble him. That is how the Bible talks about the nature of union union to Christ and the works that follow. So to appreciate this, turn over to Romans 8. Romans 8, one of those texts that speaks so clearly about this blessed doctrine of adoption, And look at verses 14 through 17. Paul writes in verse 14, he says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Again, you see that old relationship, you no longer belong to that, you belong to the new relationship to your father. He says, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What is the chief gain, the chief uh, gift that we get in our adoption? When we are made children of God, we are given the spirit. And it's through that spirit we are empowered to live the Christian life. It's through that spirit we reveal that we are God's children. We're made heirs in Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, we have fellowship with and access to God. We see that in our text in Ephesians. We see that in Romans. We also see this in Galatians 4. You don't have to turn there. But in Galatians 4, Paul says something similar to what he says in Romans 8, except he says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, or dearest Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir Through God, we're made heirs in Christ. We have the spirit and we have access. We have entrance into the family. We can approach the true and living God. But friends, there's so many things that we can apply this to in our lives. I want to make two applications based on the power of adoption here. First, friends, our adoption, it empowers us in our fight with sin. Pastor Caleb, he he referenced this in his prayer. We are empowered in the fight against sin. When, as a Christian, I continue to feel the gnawing effects of sin and temptation in my life, I do not war against that sin from the status of slavery like belonging to that sin, being owned by that sin. I'm no longer fathered by that sin. I'm no longer chained by that sin. I'm no longer mastered by that sin. No, through Jesus Christ, I am a son of God. And I've been given the Holy Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. If by the Spirit, Romans 8 says, you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. I have a whole new relationship with sin because I have a whole new relationship with my Father, I'm no longer enslaved and chained to that sin. Therefore, I can fight that sin. I've been given the sword of the Spirit, whereby I can fight all sorts of principalities and powers and every sin that mounts against me. I'm fighting from a position of strength. I'm not in a position of weakness. I'm not beholden to my former slavery of sin. I am empowered To fight that sin, which is why Romans 8 can say we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But brothers and sisters, the Bible is realistic. The Bible knows and God knows. He knew when he predestined us. He knew when he elected us that we will continue to sin. Indeed, our sin, so many of you have felt it already today. It clings to us so closely. For brothers and sisters, it is the same adoption that empowers our war with sin, that emboldens us when we do sin, not emboldening us to sin, but emboldening us when we do sin, which is why John the Apostle can say, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He's still our Father. Now how can I have such access to Him? How can I approach God as my Father even in the context of sin? Because I have an advocate. John says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice for my sin. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. see friends, it's through Jesus Christ that I am emboldened to approach the Father. And here you must realize, especially if you're not a Christian this morning, you do not have that access. God is not your Father unless Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. God is not your Father unless Jesus Christ has been made your brother. And the only way that you can be so united to Jesus Christ is through faith in His name. It's through trusting in who he is. It's through repenting of your sins and casting yourselves upon the mercies of Christ. And I assure you, if you turn to him, you'll know all the blessings of sonship. You will be made an heir in Christ. You will have the spirit of God and you will have the sweetest, most instant access to your heavenly father. Paul wants his readers to realize That at the bottom of our salvation, there is a loving Father from whom all blessings flow. The doctrine of adoption is to give us complete and total confidence when we approach God. So we've considered about what adoption is. It's this process by which we're made sons. We receive the Holy Spirit. We're made heirs. And we are uh, uh, grafted into the family of God. And we have access to the Father I want to ask one more question under this point, the the, the power of adoption. And the question is, how has God adopted us? And and by that question, I'm asking this. I'm asking, in, in what posture has God adopted us? In what manner, in what way has God the Father adopted us? You can think of a a firefighter who saves somebody from a building, it's their job to do that. Um, What's the posture of the firefighter to that person they're saving? Well, that person might just be an ordinary Tom, Dick, or Harry. It might be just an ordinary citizen. Well, that firefighter has a completely different posture if he's saving his child from the fire. If he's saving his son from the fire, it is a completely different relationship, therefore, we should ask... In what posture does God bestow? Does he set his love upon us? Friends, it's here that we see in our text in so many ways that God has adopted us from a posture of deep and personal love. It's with great affection that the Father has chosen to adopt us. It's with great affection that he has saved us. And friends, this is so important. Because it is assumed by many, if not asserted, that our heavenly Father, by nature, is opposed to us. Like, we can sort of breeze through the Christian life and think that up in heaven with my Father is this constant furrowed brow looking upon me, but Jesus Christ the Son cheers the Father, allowing him to tolerate us, but still kind of at an arm's length distance. Friends, that is not how adoption works. We can sometimes think that if it wasn't for the loving Son, the, the wrathful Father would only oppose us. Friends, that's just not true. That's not how the Bible presents the love of God, that's not how the Bible presents the heart of the Father. Yes, it is true that in the drama of salvation, God's wrath against sinners must be satisfied. That is true. It is true that the only means of satisfying the wrath is the work of Christ, but we must ask ourselves, who planned redemption? God did. He is the blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. At the bottom of the great motions of salvation is a loving Father who has chosen to bestow his love upon us in Jesus Christ. Friends, God has made arrangements inside and outside of history to bring about our salvation. It is the Father who so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believed in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved the world. God chose sinners from before the foundation of the world, and He didn't do so begrudgingly. He didn't do so... Without enthusiasm. No, this is the same God who did not spare his only son in order to give us all things. Friends, he is merciful. He is loving. He is gracious. And it is this good and generous father who has gone through such great heights, through such great depths, who has taken such great strides to make our calling and election sure. Paul wants his readers to have blazing confidence in the love of God. Blazing assurance that their heavenly Father loves them. Verse 5 says, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in beloved. It blesses in the beloved. I want us to see in the rest of this point, in the posture of his love, that it is a posture of deep and personal love because our text repeats this in several ways. First, it says, in love he predestined us. Now your Bible has that phrase, in love, it probably has it at the end of verse four. Um, but you are probably aware that the verse numbers in your Bible, they're not inspired. Um, that's something that was inserted many years after the Bible was written. So those verse numbers, are, they're not inspired. Uh, which is why... One of the reasons most of the commentators agree that that phrase in love that appears at the end of verse four is actually with reference to what follows and not before. Now, in love, he predestined us to adoption. That is to what the love is referring. And I believe that because of the way the Greek language flows, but also because it's the salient point that Paul is trying to get across. He wants his readers to be impounded By the love of God, he wants his readers to be impressed with the love of God. So he says, in love, he predestined us according to adoption. God adopts us from a posture of deep and personal love. We see this, secondly, in that phrase, to himself. So if you have an ESV, your your translation says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Uh, The Greek syntax says he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. And there's no debate at all as to what the to himself, or rather who the to himself is referring to. It's not referring to the son. It's not referring to the spirit. No, it is referring to the father. The father seeks people for himself to belong to himself. He is saving and predestinating and seeking a people for his own possession. See, that to himself matters. See, if there's a way in which we belong to Jesus Christ. There's a way in which we belong to the Holy Spirit. It is not as if the Father just purchases the people of God as some toy for his son, or some possession for his son. Um, I get things for my son from time to time. I might buy him a gift. I might get him a book on dinosaurs. Spoiler alert, I'm not that interested in dinosaurs anymore. Paleontology is boring to me, but I'm happy in a sort of secondary way that my son loves dinosaurs and that he loves the book about dinosaurs, but I'm not really interested in that gift. That is not what adoption is like. That is not what the gift of our salvation is like. It's more like the house that I bought for my son, where I live too, and I like that house and I bought that for us both to share. You see, friends, God bought the people. He purchased the people for his own possession. He wants to be pleased by them. He wants a belonging in us. He purchased us to himself. God adopts us from a posture of deep and personal love. He does not adopt us from a posture of indifference. Thirdly, the text says, according to the purpose of his will. I like the ESV, I use the ESV, but I don't really love the way that word purpose is translated here. It's not necessarily incorrect, but it's much better uh, translated, the the kind intention of his will. Uh, If I just say purpose, that doesn't really have a positive or negative connotation, but the phrase that Paul actually uses is that of kind intention or the good pleasure of his will. You see, God has predestined us for adoption according to his good pleasure, according to his kindness, according to his steadfast love, he has chosen to adopt us. God does not watch the progress of our salvation as an architect casually watches over his project. Like, okay, the pieces are moving, this is all going according to my plan. That's not how God watches the plan of redemption. No, no, no. He brims with affection as he carries out his heart's desire. Adoption is not the product of some cold and mechanical commitment God has towards his providence. And God is committed to his providence. But Paul, the apostle, wants us to know, no, it's because he loves you. It's because of his great affection that he has chosen to adopt you in Christ. It's his delight to save It's his pleasure to redeem. It's his greatest joy to make us his children. He does it according to the kind pleasure of his will. God adopts us from a posture of deep and personal love. Fourthly, it says in verse six, he does this all to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That word here for blessed us, uh, is more accurately translated, he freely bestowed upon us. It's not the ordinary word for blessing that we've seen in previous verses. No, no. It's a word for freely bestowing one's love or showing one's high favor or regard for someone. It's only used one other time in the New Testament and when it's when the angel Gabriel appears to the Virgin Mary and he says, greetings O favored one, the Lord is with you. Brothers and sisters, with eternal love, God is bringing together a people for his own delight and joy. And Paul says that he favored us in the beloved. His beloved is his son, the one who received that blessed commendation. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the love of the father towards us is bound up in his very love for his son. So much as we are united to Christ, we are blessed and loved in the beloved, which is why Colossians 1 makes this so clear. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's in the beloved, that we have redemption. It's in the beloved that we have forgiveness. It's in, be- in the beloved that the Father freely bestows His grace upon us. God adopts us, brothers and sisters, from a posture of deep and personal love. Can you not see how this truth of adoption, it leads the Apostle John to exclaim, oh, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we could be called children of God so we are. He says we're not merely called children of God. This isn't some illustration that God uses to show something of his love. No, it's the real truth. In Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I am made a child of God. I find that in my encounters with unbelievers, non-Christians, much of my time is... Spent trying to convince them that the bad in this world is so much worse than they realize. Um, if you're not a Christian, you might have a negative outlook on the world. Uh, you might have a negative outlook on humankind, on people. I want you to know it's, it's way worse than you realize. Like outside of Christ, we are born into sin. Outside of Jesus Christ, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And are the just recipients of the eternal wrath of God? It is so much worse than you could possibly imagine. It is so much bleaker. It is so much darker than you realize. And I just find in my conversations with lost people, much of my time is trying to help them understand, look, there's bad news out there. The world is bleak, and your state before a holy God is so much bleaker. But friends, we must realize that in Christ, The good news is so much better than we could possibly realize. It's so much greater, so much higher, so loftier than we could possibly imagine, which is why Paul is out of words to describe the love of the Father. It's why he prays so much that we would have sight. It's why he prays so much that we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened because he understands that Christian need Christians they, they need to know something of this love. They need to sense something of this love because it's so easy to forget. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. That we could be called His very children. The burden of so much of the Christian life is to understand that the good news before us is so much better, so much sweeter. There's so much pleasure for us in Christ. God's love finds its brightest expression in our adoption as sons. In Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God. I love how that hymn, the love of God, refers to this. It says, could we with ink the ocean fill? Or were the skies of parchment made? and every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade. To write, the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could a scroll contain the whole, though stretch from sky to sky. It's unfathomable. We cannot possibly imagine how great the love of God is. This is the power of adoption. Consider it thirdly and lastly and briefly, the purpose of adoption. Paul says in verse 6, it is to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Why has God saved us? Why has he adopted us? He has done so, as we will see this week and next week, to the praise of his glory, of the glory of his grace. If you don't know what God's glory is, friends, God's glory is is the outward expression or the radiance of God's inward character and perfections. Think outward and inward. God's glory is the the outward shining forth, the brilliance, the radiance of who he actually is. You see, when God does something to the praise of his glory, or for the increase of his glory, or for his glory to be magnified, he's not trying to add to himself God can't do that. He's already full. He's already everything that he is. We cannot add an inch to his stature. Instead, he longs to see the perception of his perfection magnified in every head, in every heart, and in every life. God is God, whether we acknowledge him to be or not. God is great whether we acknowledge him to be or not. He's altogether powerful and precious whether we acknowledge him to be or not. But he adopts us for the purpose that we would live lives to the praise of his glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace. F.F. Bruce, he said that the grace of God in redeeming sinful children of Adam and adopting them as his own sons will be throughout eternity the most glorious theme of praise to his name. Brothers and sisters, I hope you have sensed this morning the great cause that we have to eternally praise our God. The great cause we have to praise God with our lips, as we shall in a moment. The great cause we have to praise God with our lives. And to that, I want to offer this final application, friends, the doctrine of adoption should produce within us greater devotion to God. It should produce within us a greater commitment to God. It should produce within us a longing and success in conforming to his will. This grace of adoption, knowledge of our salvation, it should produce doxology, which is not just your mouth. It's not just your lips. No, it is your very life. When John talks about the doctrine of adoption, he says, and everyone who thus hopes in him, this great father, he says, in him purifies himself as he is pure. Oh, I belong to this God. I want to be like him. Oh, I belong to this God. I want to please him. Oh, I belong to this God. I want to fight the sin in my life oh I belong to this God I want to commit myself to his people I want to love the things he loves I want to hate the things he hates I belong to this God therefore I live a life of worship friends the grace of God to redeem saints should not compel us to live our life to the tune of some debtor's ethic you know what I mean when I say that Jesus died on a Roman cross for our sins. He paid our debt. We don't now live our lives paying him back. That's not Christianity. That's not what Christians do. Rather, every motion of obedience in our heart, everything we do in this life, it extends and it germinates, it emanates from gratitude. It is because of what God has done that I do. It's because of what he has accomplished in Christ. It's because of this new status that I've been given that I live with thanks to God. That's why that woman in Luke seven, when she casts herself at Jesus' feet, she casts herself at Jesus' feet, she weeps, she pours ointment and perfume on his feet and he says she is justified because she loved much. No, no, her love didn't earn the justification No, her love that was ceaseless, it proved that she was devoted to God, that she was committed to him. You can imagine a child who's perhaps been adopted or just a naturally born child, and the child obeys their father. If that child obeys the father because it wants to remain a son, there's something completely disordered about that relationship. Children, you don't obey your parents because you want them to keep calling you their children. You don't obey your, children, obey your parents because you don't want them to cut you off. No, you obey your parents because you love them and you want to please them because you belong to them. That is how the Christian lives a life of worship to this heavenly father. They live a life to the praise of his glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, this morning we have beheld your glorious grace to us in Christ. You have not only delivered us from the terrors of hell. You have not only delivered us from the sting of death. You have not only saved us and given us an inheritance in heaven, but you call us your sons. You call us your children. Would you be pleased, help us to approach you as such. Help us to know from our head to our toes in our bones that you are our Father. Help us now as we offer you our praise, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.